Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Why does it still take so long to sell a property? It's never been easier to view homes for sale on your mobile phone, but tech could finally be streamlining the conveyancing process with the advent of digital mortgages. Mind your financial language. If talking about money is such a taboo, columnist Jason Butler argues that maybe it's time to change the terminology. And the decline of the high street travel agent has cut out the middleman, saving millions of online holiday bookers money. But has it also reduced your consumer rights? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's popular consumer podcast. My name's Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you the news in downloadable form. There are an array of online property portals that can give you instant access to a huge array of homes for sale on your phone. But if you were to actually go and buy one, the process would still take 8 to 12 weeks. Why so long? James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money and our resident property buff, has been looking into digital innovations that could speed this up. Welcome, James. So why do we need technology to speed up conveyancing? Well, it's an opportunity, really, to use technology to um, bring a, a, a much more modern approach to something which has some very arcane elements to it. Anyone that's, as you say, bought a property knows how it can last a very long time at, at the point when you start conveyancing. Uh, the initial part of the process can be very quick, but as soon as you start to get into the legal areas, uh, you, you, at the point of exchange and run into completion, suddenly the whole process grinds to a halt as you have to demand various pieces of documentation from local authorities, uh, proof of title, and all sorts of things that uh, allow a buyer to give themselves uh, confidence that the property they're buying um, is actually... Um, you know, some, there's no sort of hidden surprises there. But technology can help speed that up because um, you don't, if, you, if you don't have to pass pieces of paper around or faxes, which is, still happens I in the world. I can't believe of, that they still there, do There are like still that. faxes, actually, oh, uh, in this process. Then obviously that can take uh, a, a much shorter time. And there's still quite a lot of sales that fall through, partly because the process takes so long and is so uncertain. That's right. I mean, it's not... If you... Well, the, the official figure is that a quarter of property transactions fail. And, you know, there is a big economic cost to that. It's not just, let's say your your sale falls through, that, that is an, a cost to you um, because of all the, the payments you've made in terms of fees and, and perhaps expensive surveys ahead of, of, of that failure. 
but also those uh, that property may be connected to a chain, um, a, a sort of sequence of buyers and sellers um, who are all waiting for um, each other to to complete that conveyancing process. And if that chain fails, there, there's a big economic cost to that. So tell us about some of the forms this innovation's taking. Well, one of the things that happened uh, recently, last month, in fact, was that Land Registry um, completed the first digital mortgage. And this was uh, this is about people who, uh, someone signing a, pro- a, pro- a property, signing away a property without a wet signature, an ink signature on pen <laughs> and paper. It was the first time it was happened electronically. No quills. And this is a property in Rotherhithe. Um, and this involved Land Registry um, doing uh, sort of setting things up with a conveyancer and and a lender, um, so that the ownership could pass electronically, and that person could verify their identity on an official government, you know, uh, verified uh, verification so identity service, and that's a very important part of it. The other thing that happened just a couple of weeks ago was that another uh, another innovation in this area was that a mortgage payment provider, as it were, was able to effect a sale all online. The payments went to a central account from uh, the bank, from the uh, buyer and the lender. Uh, the money went into the account and the, uh, the estate agent was paid and the lawyer was paid at the same time. And if you could connect up those two processes, obviously you can, you can do a lot electronically. Mm. But there is one other thing which uh, people are talking about, which is a bit further off. And uh, some people have used the, the scary word blockchain and others just talk about a digital spine. But if you could imagine that for any property, uh, if, there's, if there's an unimpeachable register, I mean, an electronic register of everything that's happened with that property, whether it's permissions, the damp, the timber, the insurance. Guarantees. Yeah, and, and that you as a buyer inherit that, that record and just add to it, depending on what you do to that property, that could potentially save an enormous amount of time. Well, all of these suggestions sound eminently sensible, but there was one um, estate agent that you spoke to who said that technology isn't necessarily always a great thing. That's right. Um, I mean, this is, this, you know, the, the problem is that estate agents come to, to view a property, to talk to a, a potential seller of a property, and the seller's already been through all the websites. They've, they've, they've seen what's, uh, what's going on, they've spoken to people, and they have their own idea of what that property is worth and said so the seller they said my property is worth 6.5 million and of course the the estate agent you know to, to his mind thought it was worth 5.25 so you have a very difficult conversation at that point <laughs> um, but his point was that everyone has now become an expert and the problem is when you get to properties particularly at the higher uh, value there's much more diversity and there are many more things that could affect value. Um, so it's fine if you're looking at somewhere on Coronation Street. It's very difficult, very different if you're looking at, uh, you know, a windmill or, or the sort of country house estate or, or somewhere that just simply uh, where the difference is the position of the house, the arrangement of the rooms, the whether it has off-street parking, whether you can run a business from it, all those things will affect uh, calculation of its value. Well, thanks very much there to James Pickford. You can read his full report online now. Why does it take so long to sell a property at ft.com slash money?
Does talking about money make you feel kind of uncomfortable? Well, it's a good thing that you like to listen to other people talking about money on the podcast, but we have a treat for you today. None other than Jason Butler, who's written his FT Money column this week on the subject of financial taboos. Welcome, Jason. Hi, Claire. So why is it that, aside from the Money Show guests, we have such difficulties talking about money? Well, I think it's different for everyone, but we, we if we understand that uh, our association with money comes from our emotional connection to it and what it means to us. And I think for many people, money is a source of shame, frustration. They're overwhelmed. Uh, it's complex. Um, and also, it, it, some aspects of money are about confronting things that we don't see as aspirational. So for a lot of us, it's 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 easy to disassociate and not be engaged with money and not view it in a positive light, other than obviously what you can have in the here and now. And you argue in your column this week that changing our relationship with money could be a question of changing the terminology that we used to talk about it. Well, yeah, I mean, let's be clear about this. When we're at school or when we're growing up, we not many of us have great what we call money education and we don't actually connect with it in the way that would be helpful for us. And I think that's because the way sometimes it's described. So, I mean, the idea of a retirement planning, for instance, is a kind of like a big, it's not seen as aspirational. You know, it's sort of thing you want to do four or five years before you die. Yeah, you know, I want to get there, please. I can't wait. Or or the idea that you're sort of falling apart or somehow not useful in society. So I think that it's different for different people. But when I do my talks, I, I, I say to people, look, please, a show of hands here. Who would like to make paid work optional? You work because you want to, not because you have to. Now, most people can get excited about that because that's not about being old, is it? That's about choice and it's about fun. It's it's kind of, it's cool. I mean, who wouldn't want to be, you know, uh, optional at work? My hand's so, raised. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, the point is, and I've done, I've spoken to benefit consultants uh, all around different country, uh, uh, employers around the country. And when I say to them, you're okay me about talking about this concept to your employees, about making work optional, because the reality of most of us is that, you know, that's an aspiration they're all actually embrace it. Far from thinking that all their workers are going to disappear if they did make it optional. But the reality for most people is it won't be optional. But but actually doing whatever's necessary to make it optional and have freedom and be your own person and sort of use money in a positive way, that actually feeds back to, OK, so if you want to make work optional, you have to perhaps modify some of the things you're doing on a day-to-day basis. And that's a much more exciting thing than please save 20% of your income from a time when you're going to be old and grey and falling apart. And the kind of nagging finger approach you've also applied to budgeting, which is something that everyone needs to do. And people can beat themselves up for spending too much money. But again, that's all negative terminology. You think they should turn it around? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've heard that this spend less than you earn and, you know, Mr. McCorber and, you know, uh, sort of uh, be smart and all that. Well, I've turned it around and said, look, it's not about spending less. To me, it's not about controlling your spending. It's about smart spending. So for me, it's, it's, for instance, uh, earn more than you spend. Now, of course, you can achieve that by earning more money from employment or from investments. You can do it by spending less money or you can do it by a combination of the two. But the difference is it's aspirational. And, and what it does is it's talking about directing the money to the things that matter to you. So there is the, what I call the, the basic you, that's the day-to-day spending. There's the future you, so that's debt repayment and building up savings. And there's the fun you, which is my favourite one, right? The fun you is all the things that make life interesting now. The difference, though, is you're putting a reference around you, a framework, so that you kind of make a bit of space for future you so that you've got time for the fun you and you don't have to have this guilt thing and carrying it around and beating yourself up so you can actually it's okay to go and have your latte it's okay to have a sandwich it's okay to have a cake it's okay to have that drink after work but as long as you know what the constraints are and you're still making space for the future you 
Thanks very much to Jason Butler. You can read his column now, Mind Your Financial Language, on ft.com slash money. And it's also in the money section of the FT Weekend newspaper this Saturday. We're all going on a summer holiday, eventually, and it's more likely than ever that we will book it ourselves online using a variety of different websites. But if something goes wrong, what are your consumer rights? Lindsay Cook, our money mentor, has been looking into this before she jets off on holiday herself and has touched into the money studio before she goes. Welcome, Lindsay. Hello. So the internet has revolutionised the way that we book holidays, but is it all for the good? If you are the person in your family or group of friends designated as the holiday booker, it's uh-huh. not to the good. <laughs> because I recently booked a holiday for myself, my sons and daughter-in-law. And there are so many things to consider. Have you got all their names correctly? What is the name on the passport? I mean, I have been with my husband long enough to know that he doesn't use the name that his parents gave him. But there are lots of people that you go on holiday with and you're not sure. If you get that wrong, the later you find out it's wrong, the more it'll cost you with some airlines. It can be more than £100 to change a first name on a travel document. Or it could mean (laughs) you have difficulty when you get to the airport if you don't know until then. The Financial Ombudsman, Resolver, the free complaint service, both have had an increase in complaints about travel. And these might relate to insurance, about getting compensation. Um, Insurance is one of the big ones. Getting compensation is a growing one. Yes, we certainly saw that recently with the um, British Airways um, computer meltdown. But um, paying for things like holidays, flights and other services on your credit card um, is one way of getting additional protection, we think. But you found out that this is not a panacea. No, it'll cover the person who books, the person whose credit card it is. It doesn't technically cover their partner, their spouse. Um, The Consumer Credit Act is a deal between the customer, the credit card holder, and the provider of the credit. So if you book a holiday and you book it for your partner as well or your children, chances are if things go wrong and you need to make a claim because the holiday doesn't exist or something like that, you'll only get the portion for yourself. A number of people are testing this and one or two companies have allowed it. One in particular was when... Somebody paid, they were in a wheelchair and therefore their spouse had to be with them for them to enjoy their holiday. But it it is a problem. Also, if you're banker mum and dad and you're paying your children's holiday flights or whatever, when they get to the airport, they won't have your credit card with you with them. So they can have problems just checking in. And again, they are not covered if the holiday goes wrong. I once had to um, scan a credit card and send it by my mobile phone to somebody at an airport check-in to allow them to to travel and this is down to um legislation where people are, are, are people need to check who's paid for the flights and that that matches up with the with the person who's um who's travelling but another common mistake people make is with travel insurance and finding out too late that they haven't got the right level of cover or even having a drink on holiday can affect a claim And you should book, either have an annual policy or book um, insurance when you're booking your travel. But that doesn't mean you book it with the airline or the travel company because that's likely to be more expensive with less rights and cover. You need to know what you want. You know, are you taking a laptop or an iPad or an expensive phone or camera with you? 
Does it have gadget cover? Is it sufficient? What does it say about where, if you're going to be leaving your luggage in the reception area of a hotel on the last day, will that be covered? Because a lot of um, policies don't cover that unless it's locked up and you have a ticket given to you. Um, Passports. If you just leave it in your hotel room in the suitcase and it gets nicked, then that's not regarded as looking after it properly. It should be locked away somewhere or on your person. Those sort of things. But alcohol is the one that is is growing in the number of complaints because insurance companies have now all got in their policy. If you are, it doesn't say inebriated, if, if, if your behaviour is affected by alcohol. Now, mm. um, That's a legal minefield. <laughs> it is a legal minefield. But they are, they are trying to wriggle out of paying. So somebody falls over and cracks their ankle because after a glass of um, Prosecco have been known to be challenged on it. So if one, obviously you don't drink too much on holiday, but two, if there is an accident or something is stolen, because it's not just accidents, if your bag is stolen because you've had a glass of Prosecco, they might wriggle out of that as well. So if anything happens to you at the time, get photographs of what happened, mobile phone, etc., but get witnesses. Keep the receipt, which shows you've had one glass of Prosecco, um, not the Entire. bottle of whiskey. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks very much. It's almost enough to make you not want to go on holiday, I have to say, all of the all of the paranoia. But thanks very much there to Lindsay Cook. You can read her Money Mentor column now on ft.com slash money and in the money section of this weekend's FT Weekend newspaper. That's it from The Money Show this week. We'll be back next week at the usual time. If you want to get in touch with our team of experts, please email us money at ft.com or tweet us at ftmoney. See you next Thursday. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.